welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. So today we have on a returning guest, we have on Eric G. Wilson. Eric is the author of How to Be Weird, Dream Child, A Life of Charles Lamb, How to Make a Soul, The Wisdom of John Keats, Keep It Fake, Everyone Loves a Good Train Wreck, My Business is to Create, Blake's Infinite Writing, Against Happiness, and The Spiritual History of Ice. In these and other books, Eric explores relationships among strange moods, good writing, and generous irony. He teaches creative writing and British romanticism at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he is the author of the new book, the new book Point Blank. Welcome back, Eric. Leon, it's so good to be back with you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you last time around, so I look forward to our chat. Yeah, man. And I got to tell you, so I, first of all, I've never heard of this movie before, uh, before talking to you about it and obviously seeing some of your posts on social media, Instagram in particular. Uh, but yeah, man, so it resonated actually with one of my, well, it resonated with me because it relates to one of my favorite movies of all time. So if you had to guess, right, it, what do you, I don't, obviously, you know, no pressure here because it's kind of a tough one. Most people don't get this right. Uh, what do you actually think is my favorite movie of all time that's actually related in some way to Point Blank and really resembles it? Mm. profoundly resembles it i mean almost john, john john wick i knew you were gonna say that no it's not john wick you know what it is it's michael mann's thief ah you gotta get to where you don't care nothing about nothing yeah man so, yeah, i love that movie god yeah what's so cool is so like you know watching and getting through point blank i there's so much there's so many kind of relations to it and so i remember so with yeah. thief i mean the reason why i like it is because like it's this ultimate tough guy right uh so as as you obviously know i'm really into existential theory and existential philosophy and if you think about the michael mann character in thief he is like the ultimate the, the ultimate man right the, the sort of epitome of uh of let's say of existence you could say you know for kind of lack of a better term so this mm -hmm. is a person who's really took his destiny into his own hands and said, you know, I'm going to make my life out of what, what I want it to be. And what's so great about the Michael Mann movie is that like you have this person who is um, who doesn't really have much of anything. Right. So he doesn't have like, let's say, an education uh, that we know of. And he doesn't have like the sort of the stepping stones and the tools to actually make it in society in, in, in sort of in making the American dream and making it work for him in the way that we tend to think of, uh, let's say, you know, what success is. So he mm -hmm. kind of carves his own path. And so you get that a lot with the Lee Marvin character in Point Blank, too. Right. It's you get the same notion of you know I can kind of I can I can sort of recreate or create my world in the way that I want it to be so can you tell us a little bit about the background of the book the movie why it was significant to you absolutely and, and I hope we look back to uh Michael Mann yeah. uh heat was I mean heat is very much influenced by point blank not so much the story as, as the, the use of LA as a setting but I do believe that the Frank character the James Conn character in Thief shares a lot of parallels with the Lee Marvin character Walker and in, in point blank so I, I grew up um, in a household. My dad was a high school football coach. He was a very traditional man. So he he liked traditional Hollywood action movies a great deal. He was a huge John Wayne fan. He liked Clint Eastwood, but his favorite was Lee Marvin. So I spent my childhood um, watching Lee Marvin whenever it came on TV, um, mainly the Dirty Dozen. That was that was a real household favorite. So as, as I aged, I watched more Lee Marvin films. I watched The Big Heat, uh, also starring Glenn Ford, where he plays the heavy. I watched Liberty Valance, where he also plays the heavy. So so Marvin had this kind of Hollywood history of, of playing just a really nasty, tough guy. Um, but finally, in, in 1966, he played in this film called The Professionals, along with Burt Lancaster and, and several other stars, where he developed this kind of sardonic, sarcastic, world-weary character who's also very very good at his job and he carried that character forward to say dirty dozen and to some extent um to the walker character in point blank now i did not watch point blank until 2017 um it was just off my radar and in fact it was off a lot of people's radar this one was really making a comeback now and here's where i saw it and this is one reason why i was so interested in writing about it um I was in England. I just left a marriage of 24 years. So I was feeling a little uh, vulnerable, insecure, pained emotionally. So I'm in London. I'm flown in. I'm jet lagged as hell. I can't sleep. So I'm, I'm just going to watch a movie. So I was staying in the South Bank near the BFI Film Institute, the British Film Institute. And I see Point Blank starring Lee Marvin. It's like, I love Lee Marvin. Let me check this movie out. And immediately resonated with me because this is a man, about a man who's been betrayed by his wife betrayed by his best friend, everything that he has held sacred has been stripped away from him, as was true of the Frank character in Thief. 
everything has been stripped away from him. What is he going to do now? I, I was not shot like Marvin was shot. And I, you know, my, my wife, as far as I know, didn't betray me like that, but I still felt, I felt like I, I, I resonate with this character. So I became kind of obsessed with the movie and started watching it over and over again over the years. Um, I came to, to write the book in this way. Um, I'm, I'm also a deep student of David Lynch. I have a book on David Lynch. And the British Film Institute um, editor sent me a request to review a manuscript they were considering on David Lynch's Eraserhead. Wow. And I said, sure. So I reviewed the book and it was a great book. It'll be coming out soon. But when I sent back my response, I said, hey, can I pitch you a book idea for, for a British Film Institute book? And he said, sure. So I pitched point blank. So the the the, the book grew out of, on, on the one hand, kind of a, a, a deep psychological um, need connect with this movie uh, but also uh, the kind of when surreal connection that david lynch <laughs> created got me to write the book as well so in the course of writing the book i learned a lot about the film of course i learned a lot more about lee marvin and i learned that this is a very unique kind of movie it comes out in 1967 um, john borman almost a totally unknown director at that point he, he went on to direct deliverance and excalibur among many other masterpieces Lee Marvin had just won an Oscar for playing um, in Cat Blue, a, a comedy. And essentially what Borman tried to do in this film, and we can talk more about it, is that he was really interested in traditional Hollywood genres like the revenge film. So this film is set up as kind of a traditional revenge film. This man has been wronged. And the only way he'll feel whole again is through getting revenge on those who have wronged him. So that that plot runs through the film. Um, also, it feels a little bit like a spaghetti Western. You have the sort of the lone gunman uh, fighting against this corrupt world who has taken away what he most loved. And the, and the L.A. cityscape is so sparse. It feels almost like you're in, you're in the, the, the plains of Nebraska. So, so that's there. Also, Borman was very deep into European New Wave cinema. Um, in particular, the films of Truffaut, Godard, Jean René. Um, and what he liked about these films is how they kind of play around with time and space. Very fragmented films, films very much dependent upon flashbacks, jump forwards, kind of a dreamlike logic. So there are three different kinds of, of movies kind of funneled into Point Blank. And I'm just saying this again to emphasize how unique the film is. But ultimately, it's a trauma film. It's, it's, it's a film about... Not only the main character, Walker, trying to make himself whole, but it's also about Lee Marvin trying to make himself whole as well. Because the reason Lee Marvin made the film, and the only reason he made the film, is because he thought the main character was struggling with some of the issues that he himself, as a former World War II soldier, who had seen a lot of combat, was struggling with. Lee Marvin was in a big battle. He was a private in, um, in the in Marines in World War II. And only about seven of his company of 200 survived the battle. So he had tremendous survivor's guilt. And not only that, he was like a, 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 a raft boat sniper where he would, he flew outside of these islands in the Pacific and he would, he would shoot people. So when he's talking to John Borman about the film, John Borman, who's a nobody, um, he says, I'm going to do this film because I think in playing this character, I can work through some of my own issues. So you have those four things playing around in this film, which I think makes it almost unique um, among any sort of traditional action film. So I'll stop there and we can perhaps go into more specific um, issues. Yeah. And the notion of revenge, I think, and when we talk about like, let's say something like John Wick and obviously yeah. definitely in Thief, I think for a lot of, let's say tough guys or a lot of men, I think that's the, I mean, it's not even, I think, I think this is well known at this point. So it's not like I'm revealing anything super, uh, super insightful here, but I think for a lot of men, and again, the tough guy character, revenge is the only way to cope with trauma. And so like with Thief, I mean, as you remember with the Frank uh, character, he essentially uh, says to himself and something, it was something along the lines of like, you know, if I could kind of like knock this person out, right. This person who I want to know nothing to do with uh so it was you know so in the um, in the uh in point blank it's called the organization i don't remember exactly what the outfit was called in thief which is crazy because i've seen the movie like 50 100 times so but the point is to say that it was a similar kind of thing right and so what i think with frank and this is the one i could i could kind of speak more to his character than to the lee marvin one but i think with frank there was the sense that like hey i want to do this on my own right i want to get rid of as much uh, as much external factors as possible and i want to get rid of as much influence from the universe as possible and then obviously 
see he kind of gets in with this uh, kind of mob boss or whatever you want to call him. And the mob boss says like, look, you know, I'll make a deal with you. We'll do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then at some point, you know, you can go your own way, oh, your own way, right? And it's kind of interesting because this is idea, I think that life kind of could work that way. You know, I could sort of like delve into a bunch of different things, but then I could kind of come out of it the way I want, you know, and I can go sort of be free to do my own thing. And what I think with the Frank character happens is that, you know, he learns the hard way that the universe doesn't really work that way. Whenever you involve yourself and immerse yourself just in life generally, you can't influence in the way you can't influence it in the way that you want. So Frank says, you know, hey, we have this deal, right? And I think a lot of times, just again, going back to the way I would say that a lot of you know tough guys think, I mean, this could be more, uh, more gender sort of fluid here. But I think the way a lot of tough guy thinks is that like, hey, if we have this contract, right, I expect you to abide by it. It's sort mm -hmm. of, you know, mm -hmm. a kid throwing a tantrum to the universe and saying, this is not fair. You know, I wanted it to be this way. When I did, you know, X, Y, and Z, I expected this to happen in return. And the universe is like, fuck you, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, with the Frank character, and I think, again, in both cases, and, you know, again, going back to the Lee Marvin character too, not to get away from it too much, is you get this sense that, you know, they're making deals, right? And they expect, you know, kind of more existentially, the universe to sort of honor those commitments. Yes. And then yes. when, yeah, when in the, in the, in Alcatraz, in the scene in Alcatraz, when he's turned on, uh, there's the sense that like, wait, you know, like I didn't do anything wrong. This isn't mm -hmm. fair mm -hmm. to me, you know? So yeah. again, there's this notion of if I get revenge, I can sort of right things. And mm -hmm. in existentialism, you get this theme of balance, right? So, yeah. and what we, what we mean when we think of balance is that we think of uh, control, right? Essentially that if I can kind of balance the world, if I can make it fair. And uh, I mean, not to veer off topic too much, but like with, there's a, there's a diagnosis called OCPD, which I've talked about uh, extensively. I have it. Um, so with OCD or with OCPD, there's this notion that I can control the world and I can make it fair, you know, and there's this obsession with fairness. And you get that in both characters with Frank and obviously Lee Marvin. So there's a sense that justice, right? Justice, revenge, it can justify and it could, uh, well, I'm sorry, not that it can justify, that it could sort of make right, rather. I think that's a better way of phrasing it, that it can make right these wrongs as though any of that even really matters. It's as though if I can just take this one thing that happened to me and I can reverse it, $93,000, what? Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, it's like if I can take this one thing and I can reverse it again, it means that I have a hold and a control on the universe. I can make I can make a contract with it. I can negotiate with it. But yeah, I think he learned the hard way that that wasn't really how it worked. So what's so cool about um, man films? I'm thinking in particular Thief and and Heat, the De Niro character in Heat and the Con character in Thief. They have these codes, right? Where you have in, in De Niro's character says says uh, Lee McCauley, I think his name is like. You got to be able when the heat's around the corner. You got to be able to leave anything at, at any time. Five seconds. And five seconds. And but of course he does. He's not able to do that. But because because, because as he's driving um, the Edie to the airport and maybe be with this woman who loves him, he just has to veer off and kill Wayne Grove, who uh, he wronged him a long time ago. And 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 Khan, you know, he he falls in love with Tuesday. Well, they they adopted child. Of course, the adoption is arranged by the mob boss, and ultimately has to give her up. Um, to, to follow his code. He could probably have run away with her, but he says, no, I have to stay here and, and follow out my revenge. So I think it's interesting. I mean, I think in our culture, well, traditionally, and this goes all the way back to Ernest Hemingway, the idea that to be a man, especially in an existential universe, a world where there are not, are not set values, you create a code and you follow it. And that's what authenticity is. And that will lead to a meaningful life. But I think in those two man films, and I think in Borman's Point Blank, that's called into question. Because if you latch onto a code, you become inflexible and you're sort of not open, as you say, to 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 chance and randomness and the idea that life isn't fair. You've got to be able to kind of accommodate that somehow. And if you just hold on to the code, you, you put yourself in this kind of either or situation where either it's this way, like I want it, or it's not that way. And it's terrible. So we see someone like Marvin. Yes, he's he's betrayed by his best friend. His the character's name is Mal, played by John Vernon, um, and his wife Lynn, played by Sharon Acker. Um, they are in Alcatraz. They're going to steal some money on a, a drug drop, and the drug deal is is um, carried out in the name of this massive crime network called the organization. So Marvin gets betrayed by wife and best friend. That he's left for dead in a, in a prison cell, and that's how the film opens. To where you kind of wonder if the whole film's a dream. Some people think that because he wakes up kind of half dead. And there, there are a lot of sort of ghostly moments in the film we can go into. Um, but the point is, when he does come back, um, he wants his 93000 
which was never his to begin with, right? His stolen money, but he wants that money because he thinks as it coming to him, he thinks it'll make him whole. So once he kind of moves up the chain of the organization, you know, thinking that if he can just get to the top guy, he'll finally get his money. But I, I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to spoil the whole film. But when you get to the very end, it's almost like getting to the end of, say, Fight Club or Sixth Sense or Usual Suspects. What you thought was the case and what Walker thought was the case, it's the exact opposite. So it's almost like his quest for revenge um, is a quest for wholeness. But I think the film is almost satirizing that a little bit saying that that if you're just out for revenge, then it's not going to make you whole. It's not going to make your trauma go away. It's just going to enhance your trauma. It's going to intensify your trauma because you're being totally controlled by that past pain. And you see in the film, the other female character played by Angie Dickinson, Chris, is constantly trying to pull Walker back into the into life. Like, hey, man, I think you're great. Let's Let's date. Let's hang out. Let's make love. But all he cares about is that money. And this, and Borman said this, and, and when he when he and Marvin were talking about the film, the film is largely about how shallow the quest for revenge is and how impotent the quest for revenge is. And that's why I say this film is kind of a deconstruction of traditional Western manhood as it appears in Hollywood films. Um, you see Charles Bronson in Death Wish, or you see Clint Eastwood in High Plains Drifter or Dirty Harry. Those films really aggrandize revenge. Like, I mean, th they're not ironic. I don't think about revenge. Like, this is this is how a man is a man, uh, getting back at the world that has wronged him. But I feel like there's something much more subtle going on. I mean, we would call it now toxic masculinity. But but I think that Borman kind of had that sense that the problem with Marvin is he's not sufficiently in touch with what we might call a kind of feminine energy. Um, symbolized by Angie Dickinson, he's just so overly emphatic on the masculine that he's cut off, cut himself off from the forces of life. Yeah. And, you know, clinically speaking, the thing that stood out for me the most was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to spoil the ending a little, little bit. I'm just going to kind of- That's just, fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't say what the ending was, right? But it was anticlimactic, right? So, and what I like so much about the anticlimactic ending is, I, I, I won't say what the ending actually was, but what I like so much about it, when you now think about like, let's say, uh, when you interpose uh, trauma therapy, right? Or sort of the clinical aspects of all of this is that, let's say if you, let's say if you're a therapist, a clinician, whatever, and you find somebody or you meet somebody, let's say they come in your consultation office, they present with PTSD, you know, I would say maybe not nine times out of 10, but somewhere close to that, they actually think they know what's best for them, right? So mm -hmm. they'll come in and let's say they'll say, maybe that's not exactly accurate. I just want to be fair, because sometimes people really do go to therapy because they're like, hey, I don't, nothing works. I don't know what will help me, right? But a lot of times there's this idea that like, I need to reverse the trauma, right? And there's this sense that, you know, no matter what you tell me, or no matter what we talk about, I'm, I don't want to move on. And, mm -hmm. you know, I understand that I just want to be, you know, kind of like, um, what's the word as sort of sympathetic as possible, because I mean, I'm not the one in these experiences. So it's very easy to say, well, yeah, of course, you I mean, people say this all the time, of course, you should move on, like, look at how this is ruining your life. So I want to be clear in saying that it's incredibly difficult to move on. But with that said, and this is what the film I think represents, is that there's this notion of I know what's best for me. And mm -hmm. what's best for me is finding a way to reverse it, right? Whether it's obviously completely magical, and the thinking is let's reverse time and find a way in some way to kind of make this make this not happen, whatever kind of magical sense you can think of it, right. But then also, there's this notion that again, we can get revenge right we can sort of uh seek some sort of redress or uh, we can retaliate or whatever it is and there's this idea that whatever is kind of in front of me I kind of cast it off or I push it to the side, just like he did with the Angie Dickinson character, because it's way less important to me than this. And yeah. so what I love about the end scene is that you kind of get the sense that he was wrong. You know, it's like he mm -hmm. gets this thing that he wanted and nothing really changes. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, especially again, in the kind of consultation room of a therapist or a psychiatrist, whomever, what you a lot of times sense is that when the person actually does get their way, again, not in any magical sense, but let's say they do get some sort of form of justice, even in the, let's say criminal sense, where let's say somebody gets put away they go to jail oftentimes it's nowhere near as sort of it's not as much of a bomb as they think it's going to be again not to say that none of this should happen i understand you know obviously justice is super important especially for the future but i think a lot of times people with a significant history of trauma they become obsessed and they mm. think to themselves mm -hmm. okay this is the thing like i need this to happen because once this happened it's going to either offset what's happened to me before or it's going to come close to offsetting it and so mm. i mean unfortunately what happens is you kind of not enjoy it's not the right term 
but you feel some sort of relief or release whenever there is some sense of justice, but then it kind of dissipates after everything else and you're left with this void, right? And I think with the, going back to the Frank character and, you know, again, the point blank film is that you get this sense that the void can't be avoided. No, you know, uh, no, mm -hmm. but so uh, essentially when you, when you, yeah, yeah. When you yeah, when you're when you're kind of when you're on this, you know, one track and you're thinking, okay, this is the thing that will heal me. Once you I, I tell you, you either don't get it, but once you do finally get it, if you're lucky enough, you kind of get the sense that, like, oh my God, man, this didn't make me happy. And so mm -hmm the thing I will spoil is the end of Thief. So in Thief, what happens is he finally gets the, the, the baby, right? So he has pretty much a stable relationship with his wife. And then he literally wakes her up in the middle of the night. He says, hey, listen, you got to fucking go. And she's like, oh my God, I don't understand what's going on here. He's like, no, you're not going to understand because there's nothing to really say. You got to go. And so all of it and, it, and as he's making and taking these steps, you see that he's sort of falling further and further into the void. So as the movie ends, so he wins, right? He, he, he kills the mob boss. He kills mm -hmm. his henchmen. He does it on his own is this brilliant scene and literally what does he do he walks into a fucking void there's nothing yes. that is the end right. of the movie and That's you right. think wait right. where is this life going now so mm -hmm. the wife is gone the baby's gone he's killed the mob boss it's like 1981 what has this guy been up to for the past 40 years you know and it's yeah nothing, yeah. Probably yeah. Nothing. yeah 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 so i mean part, part of what i'm picking up on what you're saying is is how trauma affects time and I think I think that's a key part of Point Blank in particular, the, the way that Borman constantly has the Walker character have flashbacks to the moment when he was shot by his best friend and betrayed by his wife. And that's one that's one rationale for the experimental nature of that film. I talked about how it plays around with time. And I think the film's arguing that if you are traumatized, you're constantly kind of reliving that trauma um, and you can't move forward. It's like your life's this kind of constant repetition um, so no matter what Walker does, it has everything to do with his effort to overcome his trauma. But by wanting to overcome his trauma through more through inflicting more trauma on others through violence, yeah. we know that that's doomed to fail. The same way the film plays with space. Um, we never see Walker like eat a meal or, or take an airplane or take a taxi. He just always shows up in these places in a brand new suit <laughs> as if as if Warm is trying to say, if you're consumed by trauma, all that you can pay attention to are events that either remind you of your trauma um, and therefore anything that doesn't goes away. So space, huge swaths of space and, and huge amounts of time are inconsequential to you because they don't somehow either remind you of your trauma or give you a sense that you might overcome your trauma. So, so the film is, is, has this tension between Walker moving forward fiercely and incessantly. There's that famous scene where he's clomping down the corridor in the airport, um, where he's clomping to find his wife. And you get these kind of cuts between him clomping in the airport in Los Angeles and his wife sort of in her apartment, knowing any minute he's going to kind of converge upon her. So he moves forward fiercely, but yet he's also kind of doing the same thing over and over again. He keeps confronting people saying, where's my $93,000? And he doesn't get it. Then he confronts somebody else. Where's my $93,000? And he doesn't get it. So there's this tension between this kind of fierce linearity and this kind of vicious circularity um, in the film. And I think that, again, that's Borman's way of thinking about how trauma affects time. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the diagnosis of OCPD, I mean, it's also yeah. been argued that for the most part, it's trauma related as well, because I mean, the rigidity is focused on the fact that, let's say, I don't know, whenever you, whenever the trauma happened, I mean, it could be in childhood or otherwise. I mean, there was a significant lack of control. So what do you want now? Uh, you want control, right? And it's often confused with OCD. So OCD is not exactly the same thing. OCD is more about rituals. OCD is, I mean, sorry, OCPD is more about perfectionism. It's this idea that everything has to be structured perfectly in order for me to feel safe in my environment. And yeah, you kind of get that from him where again you're looking back on his life or you're looking around his life rather i think that's a better way of saying it and you're saying that here are these avenues that he can take so you know again i want to really be sensitive to this topic because i get that the the sort of refrain the refrain is commonly you know you not just get over it but it's like hey look at all of these things you have like mm -hmm. think of, think about the positive or whatever right so but what's funny about that is even though in the kind of mental health sphere now we have uh, such a kind of backlash to that of like you know stop telling people to get over it stop people to telling people to look on the bright side it's not exactly wrong so again when you're sitting in the room with somebody who does have ptsd or any of these trauma related disorders i mean the problem really is 
is that they can't see any of these other things, right? So you have to find a way as a clinician or even as a friend or whomever, right? Mm -hmm. To kind of work inside that rigidity and help the person see that, look, although what you want makes a lot of sense, yes, it's natural to want revenge. Uh, it's natural to even want justice, obviously. And yes, it's going to serve you in some sort of way, like even revenge. I mean, it would definitely do something for you. But mm -hmm. I just want to make sure to let you know the things that you think you're going to get out of it, it's probably not going to be that. And as you're seeking, mm -hmm. let's say, revenge, justice, whatever. And again, I, I want to separate the two because justice is definitely nowhere near revenge, not the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but to right. say that when you're searching for these things, you really have to be aware of what you're letting go of, right? So here's the, the existential fork in the road. So what you see, and I'm not sure if the movie really, uh, let's say, gave this as a message, but I think that was a little bit of what I took away from it. So as he was with the sister, uh, with the Angie Dickinson character, as he was sort of pushing her away and as he was, you know, fighting for uh, for the 93,000, essentially what you're seeing is that this dude doesn't really have multiple choice. I mean, he doesn't have multiple, uh, well, he does have multiple options, but he doesn't have a way to, well, let's say he doesn't have infinite options. That's a better mm -hmm. way of putting it. So meaning that you really have this existential fork in the road, dude, like you can get revenge or you can have a good life. It's like that Achilles paradox. You know, you can go to fucking Troy, you can get killed when you're like 30 years old and be infinite and immortal, or you can have a great wife, you can have a you know great grandchild, uh, grandchildren, and you'll be loved, right? So essentially what, what a lot of times happens is with trauma, we could definitely get into this because I think it's super important. They forego love for revenge because I yeah. think the idea there is that love is never going to give me the, the bomb or the remedy. And, you know, it's also scary, right? But it's never going to give me what revenge can give me. So when you're sitting in that therapist or consultation room or whatever you want to call it, you're really trying to help the person see like, look, if you want revenge, I mean, as long as, you know, they're not murdering anybody, if you want revenge, fine. But I really want you to be sure that you know what you're getting yourself into. Because what often happens is that revenge is glorified and glamorized. But again, mm -hmm. what normally happens is you get this like, you know, maybe 10 seconds of sort of joy or ecstasy or relief, right? And then when it dissipates, and again, going back to Frank, man, you're walking into the void and you have really nothing left. So I think, I, th I think a great meditation on exactly what we're talking about is John Wick, mm -hmm. uh, because he takes zero pleasure um in his revenge uh he, he he rarely says a word he speaks in monosyllable when he does there's a great weariness to his character i mean the all four films are in some ways his growing out of his revenge against the men who killed his dog uh which is kind of a funny uh way to begin uh four revenge films but clearly the john wick character played by keanu reeves is profoundly influenced by the acting style of lee marvin um in particular in point blank uh, laconic stoic uh, he, he he barely says a word he'll he just kind of shows up and says i want my money and that's all he'll say he, he either repeats himself over and over again or he won't speak at all now marvin wanted this to happen um in rehearsals with uh, the other actors there's there's a scene early on where he first finds his wife um and he runs into her bedroom thinking he's going to find his best friend there and he fires six times into the bed uh, leaving black scorch marks on, on, on the sheet. And then he comes back and sits on the couch with her and, and unloads his bullets on the table. Borman said this is a symbol of his, his the, the fact that he's impotent, that he's shooting blanks, as it were, quite literally, because that's what revenge is. So he's sitting on the couch with his wife, Lynn, and she starts talking. And instead of his asking her questions, she just answers the questions that he she thinks he would have asked. This was not meant to be in the film, but Marvin did this in rehearsal and, and Borman liked it. Marvin was always trying to say as little as possible. He says, let's, let's be visible, a uh, visual. I, I want to, I want to um, present information as visually as possible. And of course, the laconic nature of, of the gal in the revenge quest, this ties into Clint Eastwood. It ties into Bronson. It ties into Reeves, this idea of like a man, a few words, um, almost like a machine uh, moving forward, uh, like a robot would. So you have that, that, that push in the film, but then there again, there's this flashback when he first meets his wife, Lynn, and his hair isn't gray, it's brown, and he's kind of got this goofy grin, and he's flirting with her in this totally goofy way, and it's so lovely, and you realize, wow, this guy didn't have to turn out this way. And, and then there's that, that moment where Lynn, uh, Chris, the sister, first sees him, and you realize that she's got a thing for him, and she goes, hey, you know what, you were always the best thing about my sister. And at that moment, you realize, whoa, this guy had another life where, where, where like he'd go to a family gathering and people might like him. So you really get to see how revenge has, has dehumanized this man um, and has turned him into a kind of machine. And then there are these, these lovely glimpses of what could be or what, what could have been or what might be. And it's kind of heartbreaking um, to see how he's constantly, as you say, going to the fork in the road 
and choosing the revenge over the possibility of, of love. Now, again, I'm saying that the film is doing this. I, I'm not making any argument about the nature of revenge or trauma, but, but I'm saying the film's doing that. Um, and, I, I, and I think that in some ways, this comes, again, this film comes out in 67. I think in some ways, Marvin provided a kind of cinematic language for a kind of revenge character, a vengeful character. And I think that the Wick films take that to, to a, a sometimes comical extreme. Yeah, yeah. And then, so yeah, can we talk about Lee Marvin's actual personal life and his experiences of World War II and the connection between that and the film? Yeah, so, so um, yeah, Mar Marvin was 19 years old, a, a private in the Marine Corps, and he had some pretty nasty experiences over in the Pacific Theater of World War II. And he was shot in the, in, during this battle where most of his... Um, Combat mates were killed. He was shot in the back. He was shot in the foot. Had to spend a lot of time in the hospital. Uh, got out of the Marines and and had a pretty good acting career through the fifties and the sixties. I mentioned the Big Heat. I mentioned the Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. He also had a famous TV show, a good TV show called M Squad, where he played the kind of no nonsense um, cop with a heart of gold. And he really was a, a very charismatic sort of vibrant ferocious presence on the screen i mean as, as far as baddies go he was horrifying especially in big heat where he famously breaks a a, 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 a hot a pot of hot coffee over the face of gloria graham I mean, just nasty stuff this is in the 50s mm -hmm. so he was a big drinker big personality kind of a big womanizer you can see Marvin on talk shows in the 60s and 70s, and he's fat, fantastic. He's often smoking a cigarette, often has a drink in his hand, and he's just a great rock contour, great storyteller. So at the same time, though, if you see him in a film like The Killers um, or definitely in Point Blank, there's a softness to him as well. I mean, even though he's a big man, 6'2", like 220, uh, former Marine, total badass, has very sens sensual lips. And he has this kind of steel gray eyes, but yet there's a sadness to his eyes. And Borman saw that. Borman got that there was a kind of melancholy to Marvin underneath that stoic veneer that you don't find, I would say, in someone like Steve McQueen. I love Steve McQueen. I love his film Bullet. I, I love The Getaway. But I feel like Marvin's a deeper actor because I feel like there's more going on with Marvin, um, maybe because he went through those terrible experiences in World War II. But in any case, as I said, early on in the conversations with John Borman about the film, Marvin confessed, like, I went through some shit in, in, in World War II, and I'm still working through that. And I, I, I am traumatized. And I feel like if I play this character, I can work through some of that stuff. Now, it's interesting, after Point Blank came out, it did fairly well, but it came out the same year as The Dirty Dozen, directed by Robert Aldrich. So basically, Marvin was competing against himself. <laughs> and Dirty Dozen did better financially, not so much critically. But the very next film that Borman made after Point Blank was called Hell in the Pacific. And it's about Lee Marvin being trapped on an island in the Pacific. And a Japanese soldier, played by Toshiro Mifune, famous for many of Kurosawa films, they're trapped on this island together. They're enemies. Um, so they're like fighting and then they kind of get together. They kind of become friends. So it's very much a, a picture about working through, again, this kind of trauma and hatred and desire for revenge growing out of World War II. And in the film, there's a kind of a successful working through um, this trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think for Mar I mean, obviously, maybe we don't really know, but do you think for Marvin in the way that he worked through, through his trauma, did it differ from, I mean, obviously it had to have differed from, to some extent from the film, but do you think in the way that he kind of understood trauma, was it different from the way the kind of film portrayed it as this sort of search for revenge or was it something, was it something else for him? If you know, I mean, I, I, I feel like, I mean, again, I, I don't, I don't know the ins and the outs of, of, of Marvin's mental health journey. Um, one could speculate that it never went that well because he remained a pretty serious alcoholic his whole life. Not, not that that precludes mental health, but it gets in the way for, for sure. Um, no, I, I feel like I feel like Marvin and Borman are on the same page in saying that Point Blank is, is, is a kind of critique of the traditional masculine way of working through pain. And that is through revenge or inflicting pain upon others. And, and how that puts you in a position, again, where you're just kind of constantly repeating the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And you become almost like, almost like a machine. I mean, the one thing we know about someone who's obsessed with revenge is we know what he's going to do next. Right. <laughs> you know, like every action will be pushing toward that revenge. So, so I feel like maybe, maybe the film 
is is less about how to work through trauma and more about how not to right right through trauma yeah 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 that, that for me was also the big takeaway and you know for a lot of people who are traumatized i think the thinking is and sometimes they ask uh, uh you know not everybody obviously again i don't want to be too uh too generalizing here but somebody would ask something along the lines of like but what am i supposed to do am i just supposed to accept it and i think again going back to sort of existential thinking is that i mean in essence the answer is yeah so it's like if you're saying okay do you want to make something of it and uh, we had a psychologist on named edith Sherrill. so she has this book called the gift of trauma which is really great and also a little bit controversial because people are like what the fuck you're calling it a gift like what's wrong with you right so what she's essentially arguing is that you can take the trauma and you could do something with with it but if you know if we're saying that that means in some way not accepting it then no that's not it so i think again going back to the notion of revenge or whatever else you know you again seeking justice redress whatever you want to do with it i think for a lot of times what people are essentially so there's this fundamental uh tension right it's like do i do i challenge the trauma do i defeat the trauma right or do i accept it and i mean that's not that's a false dichotomy you don't really do either really right so what i'm saying is that you don't have to be incredibly passive and you don't have to say well you know what this is life, you know, I'm sort of, uh, I'm kind of beat around by the universe. And, you know, I'm kind of like on this, uh, on this, you know, tumultuous ship, you know, on this tumultuous sea on the ship. And so it's not really like that you don't have to do that. But ultimately, if the idea is, is that, you know, I want to, like, I want to go against it, or I want to defeat it. And I want to get to the point where I don't have to accept it. That's mm -hmm. nothing really in the card. So even if you do again, going back to the book, even if let's say trauma is viewed as let's say a perspective gift, if you want to call it that, obviously, you don't even have to use that term. Ultimately, what we're saying is somewhere down the line you do have to accept it because no matter what you do there really is no going back and there's mm -hmm. nothing that you could do to redress it even if again there is some sense of justice there's no going back in time and so i you know going back to the play of uh the play of uh let's say flashbacks and the idea of time here i think also what you get from the movie is that you know he's so obsessed with time and i think it's because he knows he can't escape it he mm -hmm. knows no matter what even if you just it's like you know when your brain ruminates and you're thinking okay problem solve problem solve problem mm -hmm. solve that's an aspect of PTSD where you're going back in time as though, again, you can fix it. So if mm -hmm. let's say somebody were to ask, you know, you know, do I have to accept it? Yeah. The answer is fundamentally yes. So it's like, again, if there is, if you do have to choose between the two, whether, you know, change or acceptance, mm -hmm. I would argue, yes, the answer is more so in the realm of acceptance as opposed to change, mm -hmm. because again, you're not going to change any of that. You can grow from it. You could do something with it. Uh, you could tell yourself, you know what, uh, you know, I want to help people who are like me in that situation. Absolutely. Phenomenal. These are all great things, but to say that I want to get to the point where I, I defeat it or it doesn't have any power over me. That's another version of this. Again, I'm not accepting it. It will never have power over me. That's not realistic, man. It's like the notion of being human essentially tells you that acceptance in any form of trauma is always going to be an existential facet of life. So, so my, my dad who passed on about four years ago now, he very much wanted to make himself in the mold of a, of a Lee Marvin as he appeared in the film or John Wayne. Love um, it. He, he, he struggled terribly from depression, but I didn't know that until about 10 years before he died. I mean, because he can't, he came up in an age and he grew up in a rural town in North Carolina, a rural mountain town where you didn't talk about that stuff. So he spent almost his entire life struggling terribly from depression and, and even schizophrenia near the end and tried not to tell anyone about it. And, and so, so I, I mean, I, I suffer from bipolar disorder. I, I certainly don't suffer from trauma. Um, so I can't speak to that existentially, but I can say that, you know, dealing with my own um, mental illness, my ten, my tendency was to try to be like my dad um, throughout my twenties and thirties. Like, you know, I got this. Um, I, I can deal with it. And then, then at a certain point, you know, I had, a, I had a child and, you know, one thing leads to another and you just, you realize you need help. So I, I get the help, but, but I, I mean, I feel like anyone who's struggling with a mental illness, a very intense, overwhelming, or even a, le a, a less intense mental illness, there is that sense of, can I live my life as if it's not there? Can I repress it? Can I put on a, st a stiff upper lip? Can I carry through? Um, or do I say, no, I'm fuck. I, you know, I'm very depressed. Then there's of course the danger, at least I'm speaking for myself now of being overwhelmed by it. Like, well, then, you know, now I can't, I, I'm, I'm depressed. I can't do anything. It defines my life. I go to therapy all the time, take medication all the time. So for me, it's been a struggle to, to yes, get to the point where, yes, I'm I bipolar disorder and that's, that's a real problem, uh, but I can manage it. You know, I, I can't cure it. I can, I can figure out like how to, how to manage it just to get through my my day um so i tell my students sometimes i say I, me i feel like life is like at birth we're pushed off a cliff and, and we're pummeling down to the ocean 
And that's our whole life. So gravity is pushing you down. There's nothing you can do about it. If you get trauma, you get trauma. Nothing you can do about it. If you get depression, nothing you can do about it. If you get cancer, nothing you can do about it. But you can decide how you're going to fall, right? I mean, you can, yeah. you know, you can do a backflip or a, or a gainer or a jackknife. And, and, and so for me anyway, there's this sense that, you know, there are all these givens that we can't control, but maybe there's a way to, you know, that's why I like the word manage a little bit. Now we're, I mean, we're way off the movie now, but we're not because, because I think the film showing he us didn't how. Get. By the way, that's what he didn't get. So and I, that's why I actually think it's a perfect, uh, a perfect okay. segue back into the movie because yeah. he didn't yeah. get that. Like what you're saying is actually perfect. The way I would describe it is more like managing it. By the way, I, I've had so many people tell me like, they're like, I hate that. I hate that I, I have this notion that I have to go to therapy and take medication just to manage. Like how, again, how unfair is that? That's such fucking bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> be cured? Why isn't there a cure? Why is this even happening to me? Yeah. And that's what he didn't get in the film. No, you're exactly, you're exactly right. I mean, he was, he was caught in the fallacy of the, of the, of the either or the fallacy of the excluded middle, <laughs> which, which is so um, seductive for all of us, isn't it? Because it's easy. Like it's either that way or it's that way. It may hurt, but at least there's clarity. But then in the middle, it's all messy and mucky and, and difficult. And we never, we never gain total clarity. Um, and I, I feel like, um, I mean, I'm a big, I mean, you mentioned existentialism. I'm a huge fan of, of, of Camus' essays in particular, because I, I really feel like he got that, 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 that we don't have that much control over our lives at the end of the day, <laughs> but we have some. <laughs> you know, Sisyphus can choose what to think about, even if he can't choose whether he's going to push the rock up and down that hill over and over again. Um, so I, 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 and I think, again, speaking about traditional masculinity as it exists in kind of mainstream Hollywood films, I think that's very much an either or world where either you're following your code and you're authentic and heroic or you're not following your code and you're, and you're weak. Um, but you and I are saying, obviously life is much more complicated than that. So it's, it's heartening to me to see a film from 1967 starring Lee Marvin that has that kind of subtlety, I believe, you know, to, to think through these more complex ways of not dealing with trauma or, or and then kind of possibly, you know, suggesting how you might deal, deal with trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I saw Thief for the first time, I was thinking, you know, going back to kind of uh, your conception of your dad, I was actually thinking the same thing. I was like, wow, you know, like this is the person I want to emulate. Like this is this is it like for me, like this is sort of the pinnacle of manhood. But what's so interesting is, as you know, you start to, uh, I guess, unpack like these layers as you get older and you try to figure out like what is the message behind this film? And maybe it's not as obvious as it would seem. So initially I thought, OK, so this is a guy who's in his control, who's in control of his own destiny. This is the existential man. But then mm -hmm. as you realize, you know, where he goes and where life takes him you're like wait no yes he might not be controlled by the sort of external forces of the universe or at least as much as you know most of us are but the thing is he's completely ruled by his impulses so yeah, where does this yeah. actually take him so okay great so there's not really much reason behind what he does i mean essentially again he's going down this line of revenge and he's saying you know again same story with uh, the lee marvin character where he says i want my money you know this is really i gotta mention this scene because it's so good so there's this scene where he's sitting um so i think he's on the back end of some house of like the mobster's house and so they're sitting together and the mobster tells him he says well you know like uh this is great you've been great so uh you know i can't wait to work with you and he says what did, did somebody else just walk in here you talking to me and he <laughs> says oh my god man why do you have to be so difficult and he's like dude we talked about this. We have a deal. I want my end. We, this is over. Our relationship yeah. is to an end. Right. And then he says something along the lines to him. He's like, Oh, you have complaints. Join the union. And he says, I'm wearing, I fucking love that. Yeah, no, that's good. I love, I love that, that, that male tough talk. I mean, man's just the master of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so here's, here's something I'd, I'd like to throw out. I mean, as you're talking about thief again, and that Frank character is so fucked up, but yet he's, he's, to me and you too, he's exhilarating. I mean, I mean, it's it's, it's just so much fun to watch James Con unravel and and to watch him like almost behave like a child. And he's like so ruled by impulse and violence. It's like he meets Tuesday Weld for their first days like three hours late. And he's like, <laughs> "What are you complaining about? Let's get on with this big romance." Yeah, you know? yeah. he's just like, um, I mean, he's just riveting. And I feel the same way about, about Lee Marvin. So what does that say? I mean, these are clearly men who are very da deeply damaged men um, who, who, who suffer pain that we would never want to suffer, but yet we love watching them go through that. Um, I just wonder, is, is that, is that a, is that like a white male? Thing? I don't know. I mean, it, 
if, if, if my wife watched Steve, I seriously doubt she would be like, oh, look at James Conn. He's amazing. She's like, that guy's a fucking idiot, probably. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's so funny, right? Because again, that's literally my favorite, like uh, my favorite movie ever. Like literally yeah. of all time. It's number one by far. And you know what's so interesting that you mentioned that? So, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's uh, my opinion, obviously. So I, I don't know how correct it is. So I don't think it's necessarily divisible, uh, like let's say by race, uh, gender, yes, but definitely not by race or ethnicity. And the reason why I say that is because even if, let's say, you look in the uh, to the, like the black community i'll just use that as an example um so like you have somebody like tupac so for tupac mm -hmm. and, and so if you've ever seen the movie jews so tupac in the movie like he idolizes james cagney and white heat by the way james cagney my favorite actor of all Love time why he fantastic yeah. yeah yeah so he idolizes him in heat and then so you know the thinking is oh maybe this is a movie or whatever and so when you like they interviewed Pac at the time around like 92 whenever he was doing the press junkets or whatnot, or whatnot. and so they asked him like oh like where did this even come from and he's like oh no i love james cagney like this mm -hmm. is like literally one of my favorite actors so uh, my thinking is in terms of being the tough guy uh for i mean maybe it's even context dependent because i think the sort of i mean maybe it's different you know the higher up you get in classes i mean it's a different type of uh masculinity or a different type of force or aggression but i do think for most men especially for boys i don't think it matters across uh, the lines of race or ethnicity because yeah you even have somebody like tupac and here he is you know worshiping in some sense maybe worshiping is not the right term but he's looking up to or admiring a white guy who yes personifies masculinity and and with the Cagney characters, I mean, essentially there were movies that he did that weren't as masculine. I mean, Yankee Doodle Dandy was a great- He was a great dancer. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. He was a top dancer, right? But no, no, yeah. no. With somebody yeah. like Pac, he would point to Public Enemy. He would point to uh, White Heat. If you look at, you know, Tony Soprano, he's also watching Public Enemy in one of the episodes of Sopranos. So no, I, I think it's a masculine thing, man. I think as boys, we grow up thinking, you know, this is the way to be because uh, and, and I think it's just, and our fathers, man, and our fathers are like that. And the guys we see in our communities are like that. So, you know, I think it's kind of unfair to say it's a white male thing I, I do think it's a male thing and i don't think it's a great yeah. but yeah but i i think it's all across ethnicity so yeah no i was just speaking from my, from my ethnic point of view but no i i don't i don't have a theory on that what you, what you say sounds reasonable um it's interesting just to see you know i teach i teach i teach college and um i mean most of the the young men coming through did not have fathers like we had i mean that's kind of a i think that's kind of a that kind of masculinity is getting phased out that that kind of stoic don't show any pain don't explore your emotions masculine i mean that's a pretty obvious thing to say um but it's it's just interesting i, I feel like i feel like the college students and from my own contact with them also my daughter's 21 so she has a lot of them as friends that they seem to have a, a, a lot more possibility for experience like cinematic experience musical experience whereas when i was coming up there it was like no you like this character yeah, of course there, there weren't as many there weren't as many options either because we didn't have the internet. But, but there's like this is what men behave like, and and this this is what male rock stars behave like. Right. Um, whereas now there's just, and I think it's great. I mean, it's like oh, you know, there's there's a lot to choose from now, where we just didn't have as much to choose from. It's just different. Um, so I've, my students have I've shown point blank in my classes a few times, and they get the humor. We haven't talked about that yet. Like Lee Marvin actually does not kill anyone at all in this in this um, film. <laughs> he, the car scene was great. He bangs yeah. a car up, but he he terrifies one man by banging up his car. He terrifies another man by shooting his telephone. So there there's something kind of funny about the film because the violence is so over the top that it seems a little ridiculous. And it's almost like Marvin knows that there's a little tongue in cheek quality. And again, I think John Wick gets that humor nicely too. I think there's something so over the top that it feels almost like a, a Buster Keaton film, like kind of a slapstick film, the, the Wick films do. And there's a little glance at that in point blank. Um, but my students, my male students, they get that humor. They're, I mean, they're less interested in Marvin's badassery and they just have more of a sense of irony and, and satire, I think, than, than I did growing up anyway. Yeah. And what do you think that was about? Why do you think he infused humor into the film, especially one that's so serious? Because Thief, I mean, outside of like, you know, the witty lines, I mean, they didn't have mm -hmm. much. Help. Like Frank was, you know, he was this, again, like, ultimate hero, the ultimate anti-hero. Yeah. Want. Well, see, I think Mar Marvin was a great comic actor. I mean, he plays these tough guys, but in Cat Baloo, he plays a, like a, a, a drunken gunfighter. And and then a kind of bad guy who has a who has had his nose blown off and wears like a fake silver nose. It's it's very broad comedy. He won Best Actor for it. It's not a great movie. His performance is not that great, but he won Best Actor for it. 
So, and even if you watch his, he, he did this film um, called The Killers, also directed by Aldrich, where he's this hitman, but he's a very kind of sardonic hitman. This woman's like, um, just give me another chance. He goes, I don't have time, lady. <laughs> and, and then he shoots her. So I think Marvin had a great comic sensibility. And I, and I think, I think he he probably wanted to inject some of that into the into the film, and I think the reason is because again, this film shows how powerful traditional masculinity can be, but also how ridiculous it can be at the same time. And again, that's that's the film is so duplicitous in a generative way, um, where you can see things one way, it celebrates this kind of masculinity, but also it mocks this masculinity. It does both at the same time. So I, I think that's the reason for the comedy. Um, I didn't pick the comedy up until third or fourth watch. I got to tell you, it, take, it takes a while to watch it. And I think for some of my students, it would take two or three times just to follow the plot because it is because of all the fragmentation and all the flashbacks. And there's a very, there's a very trippy dreamy quality to it. We haven't talked about that, but it's a very sixties film. You know, it's, it's, it's a very hallucinogenic kind of film, but think of a, like a, an action film on acid kind of the traditional revenge film on acid is how is how it feels yeah. yeah and i think one of the reasons why i did feel like it was a dream or at least you could take that interpretation i mean i, I guess we are going to kind of spoil it because we i think we have to in that respect it's, right? it's fine no, no one's yeah it's a good film yeah yeah let's yeah, let's can, go ahead yeah, the, re the reason why i say it is because like the ending is so like pertinent to this conversation yes, yes yeah the reason why it feels like a dream is because so you're looking at the ending and essentially you know the, the bad guys whatever you know the organization i mean they leave the money and they walk away and you're like wait when the fuck does that ever happen like why would they just leave this so it seemed at least like okay this so uh what was the what was the fairfax so fairfax essentially offers him a job and he says look you know you can come work for me like in what world does that happen where like the mob says something like hey do you want this job oh no okay it was good knowing you buy you know we're out of here yeah. you, you take yeah. your money right if anything they're either going to take the money and say fuck you come and get it or they're going to kill him most likely they're exactly gonna, you can do both yeah so yeah so, so that's, so that's so, like yeah. a dream so that's the thing yes yeah, so, um, so let, let's, let's just be clear about it so once marvin survives his gunshot he runs into this guy who says my name's yost and I know you want to get Mal. Mal is his best friend who shot him. I'll help you get Mal. You help me. So the whole film, this guy, Yost, keeps showing up out of nowhere saying, hey, go get Carter next. He'll give you your money. Hey, go get Brewster next. He'll give you your money. And at the very end of the film, you realize that Yost is really Fairfax, who runs the whole organization. And he's been using Walker, the Marvin character, the whole time to kill his enemies yep. so he can take over the organization. So... That's why I say it's, it, it, it ends almost like, say, Fight Club, because you realize that this character, the whole time you thought he was seeking revenge on the organization, when in fact he's helping the leader of the organization. And, he, and, and Marvin doesn't know that. So when Marvin finally discovers that, you're right. Yost says, here's $93,000. Of course, he's been faked out before, Marvin has, with paper money. So he can't trust that. And, of course, there's a sniper up there, too probably getting ready to shoot him. Can't trust that. Um, so they're on Fort Point, which is a, a, an, an old Civil War fort um, under the Golden Gate Bridge near Alcatraz. He just kind of fades back into the shadows and the film ends with the camera moving up out of the shadows. And it's kind of an aerial shot on Alcatraz. This is where the film, film began. So it's got a very ambiguous ending. And yes, some people think, oh, this is a little bit like the Ambrose Beer story, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is about a soldier in the Civil War on the verge of getting hung. And then suddenly he breaks out of his noose and he runs through the woods and he meets up with his wife again. You're like, yeah. And the guy gets hung. You realize it's all a daydream that happens the last seconds of his life. So some have thought that this film is really a dream of Marvin lying shot in the Alcatraz jail cell um because alcatraz was the site where the again the 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 crime was undertaken the robbery at the beginning of the film and this whole film is a dream and then at the end he just kind of fades off and dies right well when borman was asked about that he goes i don't really want to answer that what you get is what you see it doesn't really matter if it's a dream or not which i kind of dig it's just what's there is is there um i i see the ending as kind of like this character is given a choice um, you know, he, he could kind of enter back into time and see, and continue to seek revenge against someone like he could, he could go kill Yost or Fairfax, but almost like in Tibetan Buddhism, he gets off the wheel. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like, it's like he fades like, no, nah, I've learned something. I've learned my lesson. 
I don't want to keep seeking revenge, so I'm going to free myself from this. That's one way to see the ending, which I think is quite lovely. Um, so. Yeah. And, you know, what I would add to that is what's interesting is, again, going back to this idea of predictability of control or whatever you want to call it, is that the ending actually indicates and betrays a lack of control altogether. Again, so he goes, you know, back into the shadows and the thinking there is, OK, here's what's expected, or at least for, for me as the, the viewer. I don't know, again, what the director expected, but for me, what's expected is, oh, OK, they're going to go hunt him down and they're going to kill him. I mean, there's one guy on an island and you have a sniper and you have, like, you know, some mob leader. Right. And mm -hmm. so, again, now when this doesn't happen and they walk away, the thinking there is that, oh, my God. So. You know, for me, this was a big aha moment. Again, my just my interpretation, but the aha moment is that none of this shit is predictable. So you're mm -hmm. looking at you know mm -hmm. this, this sort mm -hmm. of uh, this the, the goal setting and this sort of way of moving through the world and moving through space, and you're thinking, okay, one thing leads to this this other or another in this chain of events and this perfect chain of events. And the ending, this again, why it's so anticlimactic is because you're like nothing happens. So how does yeah. it go? It's like you're thinking, how the hell does that work? So I'm making all of these plans. I have all of these grand goals and then literally nothing not at least not maybe not nothing happens but nothing of what i expected happened so i think again the thinking goes back into the notion of the void and the fact that we'll never have control because there's mm -hmm. no predictability the universe is more so more or less so inherently random no i, I, I love that that again in, in most revenge films the guy gets the revenge yeah. um and, and there's like yeah you know yeah. like like in john wick i mean he he sensibly dies at the end but he gets his revenge and yep. high plains drifter death we can go through a whole list but here you're right right at the moment when you think now he's gonna get it not only does he not get it but he realizes he's been working for the guy he wants to get revenge against right, right. so so i really think that, i mean you're exactly right it does show that the revenge narrative is a kind of fantasy of predictability that, you know, if I keep in a linear way seeking my enemy, eventually I will get him and I will get revenge and I'll feel better. This film says, nope, that's not how the world works, but he is given this choice. You know, he could go kill Fairfax yeah. um, and, and, and continue to seek his $93,000 forever, but he doesn't. I mean, he chooses, he chooses not. And it's so cool to me that he, that he fades back into the shadows you know, this character who's had been such an ego, such an I, you know, such a force of being, Walker, <laughs> fades into the darkness. He dissolves. It's like his his, his his outline dissolves. So it's just, again, I think it's a, you could really kind of read the film as a kind of escape from out of Bardo, from a Tibetan Buddhist kind, kind of kind of way. Um, and you know, another film that, that has the same kind of moment is Steven Soderbergh's film, The Limey. Um, starring Terrence Stamp. If you, I, I, I can see you're grinning. You, you'll love it. Hmm. Um, it, it. It's almost like a, a remake of a Point Blank. But the Terrence Stamp character, he's taking revenge against a character played by Peter Fonda. He thinks Peter Fonda had something to do with the, the death of his daughter. And right at the moment when he could carry his revenge and, and, and kill Peter Fonda, he doesn't do it because he realizes his daughter wouldn't want him to be that way. So it's it's this moment of mercy, of grace, that comes out of his remembering not what's been bad about his life, but what's been good about his life. It's a very moving film. I think, I think he'd love it. Um, oh, Harvin film doesn't have that same kind of uh, emotional punch, but it still is, I think a moment of, of very subtle you know, kind of quiet, graceful insight hmm. that, that the film does not call too much attention to it just, and I like the understated quality of it. I think that makes it more powerful. I love it. Okay. Yeah. And then, so as we start wrapping up, I'd want to know, so in terms of the actual film, in terms of the book, what do you want people and audiences to take away from it? Or what do you hold dear to? Well, I, 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 I end the book. Well, I come close to ending the book by saying, this is a very um, violent um, kind of brutal film. Why would you want to watch it again? And I say it has addictive gusto. Mm -hmm. um, what I mean by that is the film is amazing to look at. The set, the 60s fashions are fantastic. We haven't talked about that yet. The set designs are beautiful. The LA um, cityscape is, is sort of grim, but, but fantastic. So, that, so just as a visual feast, you will love this film. Mm -hmm. and, and it moves so quickly. The pace is so fast. It's almost like riding a roller coaster. So I think you'll enjoy it on that level too. So I highly recommend watching the film just as an experience. A, a visual um, cinematic experience. I mean, there's some films I just watch for how they look and how they move. This is one of them. Yep. But in addition to that, um, I, I really think the film is, as Leon and I have been discussing, 
a profound meditation on the quest to make meaning of life. And it's an exploration of different ways to go about it. And a suggestion that some ways might be successful and some ways won't be successful. Um, it, it's a unique film in that it can do both. It can both be exhilarating visually, but also it, it, it has a, a very thought provoking psychological message at the same time. Mm -hmm. So my advice would be to, to check it out. It's streaming everywhere. And maybe it'll open you up to Lee Marvin as an actor and Angie Dickinson, who's fantastic in this movie. Um, and who's also great in the John Ford film, The Searchers, opposite John Wayne, Angie Dickinson. She's someone who's been kind of overlooked, I think. I think she's a very important Hollywood actress. So th those would be my, my my final suggestions. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, and I would argue that, you know, again, outside of the just revenge uh, context or that aspect of the mm -hmm. film, I think just based on the ending, and you know, that's sort of the bleakness of it, that it's not even just so much about revenge, but I think the meditation is also on just, again, goal setting, uh, what you think will make you happy. And again, based on the fact that life is so unpredictable, it's not saying I think it's not saying, you know, don't set goals, don't... Um, don't have things that make you happy or create joy in your life. But it's also saying, be careful what you actually wish for. Because a lot of times, man, again, mm -hmm. because of the way unpredictability works, A, it might not make you happy. B, it might not come true at all. And even C, again, the whole thing is unpredictable. So there's so much randomness involved that it's very hard for you to be able to know for sure really much of anything. And I know, again, for somebody who has experienced some sort of trauma, a lot of times that's incredibly bleak. And I think for us as therapists, it's so hard for us to merge these two ideas and these seeming, uh, let's say it's a seeming confliction uh seeming conflict it's it's hard to merge them together where again on the one hand you have this person who is like you don't understand you know i'm suffering so much that i need for this to be righted but on the other hand there's again this existential truth that again there's so much randomness and so unpredictability that not much of it ever will be so yeah. okay eric we i love this conversation so much oh okay. me too if, leon yeah <laughs> if we uh if we wanted to follow you find you on social media where can we do well, um, egwilson.net um, is my website. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram under Eric Z. Wilson 777. Uh, you can pick up the book anywhere you buy books, um, probably online. Um, it's a beautiful book, I should say. It has a, a lot of the images of the film and you know, high glossy images. It's just, it's, it's 100 pages. It's tight. It's quick. It's gorgeous to look at. Even if you've not seen the film, you'll love reading it. It has wonderful stories about Marvin and Borman. Uh, so yeah. Pick it up. Great for a, a holiday gift, perhaps. Even. <laughs> I love it. Eric, thank so, you so much, man. This was such a such a wise, insightful, and just such a meaningful conversation. My you know, pleasure, my man, Leon. Always enjoy talking to you. Yeah. We found meaning, man. We found meaning we in all did, the chaos. We did. We did. So. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. See you, man. All right, guys. Bye. And thank you so much for watching. We will see you guys next time.